Good morning, everyone. Who watched the Super Bowl last Sunday? Raise your hands. I want to see. Okay. You saw the commercial that aired, right? That was pretty crazy. Uh, I, I remember when the commercial uh, went off during the Super Bowl, my, my phone blew up on Sunday. Oh, my goodness. Did you see the commercial? You just preached on that last or uh, to this morning. And I just want to a couple, demystify a couple of things about myself for you, okay? Just a couple. Number one, I cannot predict the future, <laughs> okay? <laughs> if I could, I'd be a very rich man today, but, but I cannot. And, and secondly, I'm not even with it. I mean, I didn't even know who was playing in the Super Bowl. I go to Super Bowls for food and friends, not football and commercials. Uh, there might be some reliable sources who could tell you that I slept through most of the first half of the Super Bowl, okay? But I was awake when this commercial aired, and I have to say, when I was watching it, I thought to myself, oh boy, this is gonna stir up controversy. I mean, you know that you are living in the age of outrage when a 60-second commercial, you can Google search it, go Google search it today, and it fills up like three or four pages of Google with everyone with a different opinion on whether it was good or bad. Uh, there was a Forbes article, the, the headline captured it well. It said, social media users can't decide if they love or hate the He Gets Us campaign. And then they showed a couple of the, you know, representative outrages that were online. Here was a typical one. Give me a break. More therapeutic mush. Or this one. Jesus would never approve spending millions on television ads. Jesus would take those millions and help the poor homeless and needy. Now, I just want to say two things about posts like that, okay? Number one, if you're going to make a post like that about telling us how Jesus would spend his money, you had better be helping the poor, homeless, and needy yourself. And then secondly, it always concerns me when someone's argument is the same words that Judas Iscariot used in John chapter 12, uh, do you remember that verse in John 12, 5? The perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold in the money given to the poor. You see, when you're living in the age of outrage, I want to suggest that YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, news media, they're not necessarily the best sources to go to, to, to to learn a little bit more about what Jesus would have done. Uh, the Bible is the place for that because we can see what Jesus actually did. Now remember, Jesus himself was a controversial figure in his own day and age. He divided the aisle. His own followers, especially when he washed their feet last week, they were often left scratching their heads. What is he doing? Why is he doing this? I, uh, if you want to know my opinion on the uh, He Gets Us campaign, kind of two quick thoughts. One, I'm okay with us just trying to get people to think about Jesus. I'm fine with that. 
And secondly, when you look at the story of the foot washing, it's kind of hard to argue that Jesus wouldn't have washed someone's feet when he's just finished washing the feet of his own betrayer, Judas Iscariot. And that's what we're going to see in the text this morning. As we move in, we're going to see Jesus' final interaction. He was leading us into this last week. He said, not all of you are clean. And then he presses further into the betrayal. Look with me at verses 18 through 20. I am not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but this fulfills the scripture that says, the one who eats my food has turned against me. I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. I tell you the truth, anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me, and anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. Jesus wants us to know that he wasn't caught off guard by the betrayal. This was foretold. This was expected. Um, Where he's quoting from is actually Psalm 41, verse 9. It's a messianic psalm. And one thing you need to understand about messianic psalms is oftentimes they would take something that is happening in a smaller way in the life of King David, and then that would point to something more significant that takes place in the life of King Jesus. So David was going through betrayal. And maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you've had a close friend, someone who you've shared meals with, you've spent time with, you've opened your heart up to. Maybe even someone living in your own household who turned their back on you. Now, in the case of David, it was his closest advisor, Ahithophel. Ahithophel was involved in a coup d'etat that involved David's son, Absalom. And they were going to rip the kingdom from David. And and David had to flee for his life and cross the Jordan River. Of all of the times and seasons of David's life, I get the impression that this was the most painful. I mean, David had gone through some painful things. But this, your closest advisor, your own son. Think about Jesus. You know, he asked the question, does Jesus get me? Does he understand my problems? Does he know what I go through? Of course he gets us. He knows what it's like to be betrayed, to be forgotten, to be traded in for the bigger and better deal. He knows what it's like to have relational hurt. Like I said earlier, he has just finished washing Judas's feet. Can you imagine that? Imagine you know with irrefutable evidence that a friend, a loved one has gone behind your back. How do you react to them? Can you look them in the eye right now? Can you bend down and wash their feet? I get the sense as you look at Judas's motives in this whole dynamic that actually Jesus washing his feet only confirmed his direction. He's supposed to be the king of Israel. 
He's supposed to be someone dignified and powerful that's going to lead us forward into victory. What is he doing? He's weak. He's pathetic. Now, Jesus, of course, can read the mind of Judas. As we look at verse 21, the text says that Jesus was deeply troubled. Now, that language indicates visible anguish. It's the same language that's used in John chapter 11, verse 33, when Jesus is standing outside of the tomb of Lazarus and, and he's weeping in front of the tomb. So here we are, we're in Passover. You remember, this is like the pinnacle of the Jewish calendar. It's a celebration. It's supposed to be a dinner where we're sitting down together, laughing together, having good conversation. And Jesus is on the verge of tears. It's uncomfortable. The text says in verses 22 through 25, the disciples looked at each other wondering whom he could mean. The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, who is he talking about? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and he asked, Lord, who is it? Now, if you know anything about Peter, this guy cannot live with ambiguity. I mean, he couldn't let Jesus wash his feet without saying anything. There's plenty of instances where if everyone's sitting around just kind of awkwardly in silence, Peter's the guy to break through the silence. And so he motions to John. That is, by all indicators, who the disciple Jesus loved is. You might ask, well, why would John, right? write this gospel, call himself that. Isn't that a little self-aggrandizing? Uh, is he saying that, that he's the disciple that Jesus loved the most? No, that's not what the title means. The title is actually a title that every single one of you could adopt for yourself. John is saying, as he says, I'm the disciple Jesus loved, that at the core of who I am, the core of my identity, I am loved by Jesus. So he leans in, he asks Jesus the question. Now, probably the most important verse in this exchange is verse 26. And we're going to have to unpack this one a little bit. It says here, Jesus responded, it is the one to whom I give the bread, I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. There are a couple of subtle things that are happening in this behind-the-scenes situation. Number one, when they would eat meals like this in the Middle East, a, a celebratory meal like Passover, you didn't just sit at the table, no, you you reclined at the table with pillows. So people are laying on their side at the table. So in order to pass a piece of bread to someone, you couldn't reach way down the table to them. You had to be close to them. Scholars believe that Judas was asked by Jesus on this night to be in the position, in the place of honor at the table. The gesture of passing bread in this hospitality-driven culture 
was a supreme act of love and friendship. So between where he's positioned and and the passing of the bread, you get the sense that Jesus is saying to Judas, Judas, I know what you're about to do. You don't have to go forward with this. I love you. I want to remain friends. Don't do this. So Judas is left with the choice. He can either grab the bread and therefore indicate, yes, that is exactly what I'm intending to do, Jesus, or he can refuse the bread at this time. Jesus is reaching out. Judas, don't go forward. Don't do this. Verse 27 says this, when Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. In other words, game over. He's now past the point of no return. Our staff team is reading a book right now that uh, we've been using to spiritually encourage ourselves. It's written by an author, John Ortberg. The title of the book is Soul Keeping. And two chapters of the book, Ortberg talks about what sin does to the soul. He says this in one of the chapters, what sin does is it breaks our connection with God and his love and it disintegrates our lives. A lot of us in this world today, we we don't realize that at the deepest level, our most basic problem that we have in this world is at the level of the soul. Uh, We don't tend to think about ourselves as having a soul. A lot of people today think of themselves as meat machines. I'm driven by chemical impulses, and I do things because, you know, cortisol and other chemicals in my brain are driving me to make decisions. But the Bible would say, no, 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 that's not you. At your deepest level, you are a soul. Now, James uses this interesting word in James 1.8. You might remember this word. He calls a person being double-minded. The Greek word is disukas. And the root of that word is suke, which is the Greek word for soul. So what James is saying is when I find myself out of alignment with God and God's will and God's love, I am literally being split apart at the level of the soul. I'm double-souled. I'm split-souled. I'm a fractured soul. That's what sin does to the soul. Sin fractures and shatters the soul. I've been alive a long time. Well, some of you think that not so much, but I feel like it. I'm about to hit 40, y'all. Can you believe that in March? And I got to say, in all that time, Okay, it's not a lot of time. I get it. All that time, I've never, ever heard someone say, I'm feeling fractured in the soul. Have you ever heard that? No. But I have heard people say things like, my life is falling apart right now. I'm coming undone. I can't get my act together. Ortberg 
says that there's the soul crying out to be made whole. That's why Jesus is having this interaction with Judas. Judas, you're so messed up right now. You think that in betraying me, that your life is going to be better, that you're going to progress, but you're literally being torn apart on the inside, and I'm the one who came to mend that within you. Take my offer of love and friendship. But here's what Ortberg says. Sometimes wrongdoing increases so much it can't be rationalized anymore. Think about Judas. I mean, what's rational about this guy? He has walked with Jesus. He heard the guy literally say to a storm, stop. And it stopped. He, he saw him heal blindness and lameness and paralytics and cast out demons. He was there when Jesus took a few loaves of bread and spread it out to 5,000 people to where everyone was full. What is rational about selling him out for 30 pieces of silver? It doesn't make any sense. But then you end up crossing a line. Um, you could think of it as a uh, like a person being on a diet, right? I mean, some of us are through the New Year's phase where we've kind of fallen off the bandwagon. We get this. You, you get on a diet and, and you start cheating a little bit. And as you're cheating on the diet, you can say to yourself, well, I'm still on it. I'm still great. But then what happens? There comes a point where you blow it so many times that your mind says, what's I don't care anymore. You've crossed the line. This is what happens to Judas in this text. This is what happens when morality completely collapses. This is why we see things like corporate executives who are just making just terrible decisions at the top level that dehumanize people. They don't care about the consequences or you hear about instances of families where there's just terrible abuse. How could that happen? Crimes of passion, any of these kinds of things. You reach a point where you know what you're doing is so wrong, but you don't care anymore. In um, psychological research, they actually call this an effect I don't mean to be crass. I'm just repeating what it is. It's called the what the hell effect. I can't pretend anymore. So I might as well just give myself wholly to my urges and gratify whatever I want for me. Now, Jesus, of course, came to save us from this. And this is why God gives us a conscience and why we feel things like conviction. Now, I, I have to be honest, I, I don't think oftentimes we know what to do with conviction. Why am I feeling this way? Am I feeling this way because I just got caught or because I don't like the consequences? Or is conviction a feeling that I feel just so I feel really bad about a thing and there's nothing I can do about it? I don't think so. Um, as I understand what conviction is, it is constructive. It's meant for us to move forward. Uh, Ortberg would say that it is a God-given ache for goodness. Isn't that constructive? 
Uh, instead of being torn apart at the soul level, God gives us an instinct, a, a feeling to turn towards goodness and towards him. This is what happens when a person hears the gospel and they receive Jesus Christ as their savior for the first time. When you read the stories of the Bible, it's why the prodigal son said, you know, I got to come to my senses. I need to go home and, and see my father. Or when David responds to Nathan, the prophet, and he says, I have sinned. Or when the sinful woman feels convicted and she goes and washes Jesus' feet with her tears. I would argue she's not feeling like a worm and like she can't go anywhere. She's crying at the feet of Jesus because she feels so valued and loved. There's some place to take this conviction, something I can do with it. So in the same way that your stomach craves food, your soul craves goodness. It craves relationship with God, but Judas rejects it. Verse 30 says that Judas left at once going out in the night. In John's gospel, night means away from God's light, path of darkness. Judas is left. So we pick up with the next scene, and remember, we are in a farewell discourse. In fact, many scholars would suggest that the actual farewell discourse begins right now at verse 31. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, okay, now that the real disciples are in the room, we can begin to talk about my final wishes, my final priorities for you. So he begins with lesson number one. I want to read the entire passage to you. This is verses 31 through 35, where we get lesson number one. It says, as soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, the time has come for the son of man to enter into his glory and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the son, he will give his own glory to the son, and he will do so at once. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I am going. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. All right, class, what's lesson number one? Love each other. Love each other. Did you, is that the first time you've heard that before? Oh, D.A. Carson, he kind of says this. He's like, you know, this passage is so simple that a toddler could memorize it. And yet so humbling that you could be walking with Christ for years and run up against the application of this passage. It's interesting, you know, you, you talk to Christians. I, I like to ask the question of people, why do you attend church? I'm in the business, you know, I want to know. Um, and when you talk to people about why they attend church, you get a bunch of different responses. There was actually a survey that was run in 2017 from Pew Forum. 
and they were asking people the question, why do you attend church? And here were the top three reasons that were given. Number one, to become close to God. Number two, so children will have a moral foundation. And number three, to make me a better person. Anybody have any problem with any one of those responses? I'm okay with them. I think we're all on a spiritual journey, and uh, I have no problem with us wanting to get close to God and raise our kids well and even grow as a person. Let me ask you a question. Let me reframe the question. In light of John 13 and 34, how do you think Jesus would want you to answer this question? What would he want you to say while you attend church? What do you think? To love and encourage others, love others. I think that's right. I think that he would want you to love these people in the way that he would love them. You know, the more that I am understanding the concept of love in the Christian faith as it is presented from Old Testament all the way to New Testament, I am convinced that love is something where the Bible is just relentlessly, even demandingly telling us that we need to get way more specific about it. If you look at the Old Testament, the first command or the second greatest commandment that we're given is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And I always ask the question, well, why didn't God say everyone? I mean, that would have made things a lot easier. We wouldn't have all these conflicts around the world where people look at each other and like, I don't need to like you because you're different than me. We wouldn't have the parable of the good Samaritan, right? It would be just so clear and easy and clean. I'm supposed to love everyone. But the problem with a statement like that is I can live at the 65,000 foot level. I can say to myself, I love everyone, even though every time I look at my neighbor, I get mad at him because I don't like him. So God says, nope, 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 nope. You need to love him. Okay, well, I can wiggle away from that a little bit because I can get onto nice terms with my neighbor. Like, hey, let's have a barbecue once a year, right? You know, I can kind of be in my house. He can be in his house. But now Jesus says, no, 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 no. I've got an even more profound new commandment for you. You need to love each other. Hmm. You mean the people that I show up with to church every week and person that sits in front of me that I'm so different from and we have really no reason to be together in this room other than the fact that we believe in Jesus as our Savior? Yes. Oh. And then it gets even more intense because he says, I want you to love them like I would. Well, how do I do that? The best way that I know to answer this question is I would say, that for Jesus, love was not a feeling. For Jesus, love was a verb describing his behavior. Love is proven in the will. That's the real world choices that I make 
the real world actions that I take towards another person, not inside of the heart, how I tell myself I feel about a person or even how they think that I feel about them. Jesus was love because he did loving things. What did he do that was loving? Well, he sat down with sinners and ate with them at a table. He was going to heal a little girl that he heard was on the brink of death and and he's marching along and then he pauses his progress because there is a woman bleeding and she's been bleeding for years and she's crying out for help. So he stops and he cares for her. And, and, And in that culture, it was like, okay, well, you know, adults are adults and children are children and children are never allowed to be around Jesus. And he says what? Let the children come to me. I care about them. Or it was so many taboos, so many, you know, barriers and boundaries you don't cross, and he chooses to have a conversation with a woman at a well. Or as we're seeing this morning, he passes the bread of friendship to the guy that's about to stab him in the back, or as we all have come to appreciate, he dies on the cross the sins of the world. Jesus knew something about love. And I think this formula explains it. Intentions minus actions equals squat. Do you agree with that? You know, we kind of live in a world where there's a lot of squat going on right now. I just have to, I'm just going to be honest. But love is intentions plus actions equals love. Love is a verb because love does. The older you get in life, right, you start coming to the realization there's a lot of people that say a lot of things. Oh, you know, I'm really thinking about doing a loving thing or I'm seeing a problem, and it would be great if someone else would do a loving thing. But the Bible, again, it just keeps driving and demanding and saying, no, 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 no. You pick up the towel. Love does. You take loving action when you see a need. You do something about it. Remember this idea of conviction. It is a God-given ache for goodness. I don't know about you, but when I start getting deeper into what biblical love means, and then I'm thinking about my last week, and I'm thinking about things that I could have done that I didn't do, I feel the ache. I do. But the Bible isn't giving you the ache so that you would say to yourself a story like, well, (laughs) I'm a failure. (laughs) I'm never going to be like Jesus. No, the Bible is giving you the ache to drive you to the reality that, listen, you can be like Jesus. I don't think Jesus gives us a commandment in the Bible that he doesn't expect us to follow. I think he gives us a commandment in the Bible because he says, listen, you can do this. You can pick up the towel. You can love people. In fact, as we're going to see just a little later in this series, he gives us the greatest gift of all, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity dwelling within us so that we would have the power to do what he calls us to do. 
Love does. Love takes action. Love picks up the towel. So what are some next steps? What could I do about this if I'm thinking about my own life? Well, I want to give you two, just two this morning. The first is this, love one another by serving at church. I would love it if Osterville Baptist Church was a place where the mold was broken. You remember that stat we saw last week where it was like 30% of Christians served one time in one year? I don't know about you, but I was like, I don't love that stat. It doesn't feel good. I'd love to be the place that breaks that mold. What if we all picked up the towel and served one another? I mean, there's so many different ways to serve, right? I think about coffee experience, and coffee is just such an important part of what we do. Uh, This is a place where we want to form thick relationships with one another. We don't want to just be ships passing in the night. And hospitality makes a big difference when you form relationships with people. So it's the servants, the servant leaders who serve coffee that help to facilitate the interactions. Another one that I'm thinking very specifically about is our deacon ministry. At our annual meeting, uh, we had three open spots for deacons. Do you know what the word deacon means in the Bible? Servant. So deacons care for the physical needs of others. Now, sometimes you look at that role and you're like, man, there's like 250 plus people in this church. That's a big job. I don't know if I can do all of that. Here's the deal. The deacons are not supposed to do it all. They're supposed to inspire, train, and mobilize all of us to be able to do it. Jesus didn't do everything himself. He didn't baptize everyone. His disciples were baptizing people. Leadership is influencing others to do the right thing. We need deacons. They're great for our church. We need children's workers. We need people who love children. You know, I think about children's ministry and, and, and churches all across the world, right? We love children. We care about children. But I believe that it will really be a true value for us when there are waiting lists for people who want to serve children. It's just so important. It's important for the kids to get the foundation of the Bible. It's important for those parents that need to be fed the word of God in worship service. Here's a second one. Love your neighbor by serving in the community. Servant leadership. Picking up the towel and meeting the urgent needs that are happening all around us. We have some great relationships with organizations around us. You know what the church needs more of? People that are just like, put me in, coach. Put me in. I'm ready to go. Oh, is there an organization that's packing food for kids who have food insecurities? Love does. I'll be there. I'll go do that. Or giving diapers to families who who don't have all of their needs being met. Put me in, coach. Let's go. I'm all about that. There's an old prayer. I like this one. It goes like this. God, help me to be the man my dog thinks I am. 
<laughs> that is just too good, isn't it? But the reality is, is Jesus wants more for you than your dog does. Because my dog, like, as long, well, I don't have one now, but I've had dogs. As long as there's food coming in their direction, <laughs> I am good in their eyes. Jesus doesn't want me to just look good. He cares about who I am becoming. Who does he want you to become? Well, he's already said it. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done. Well, what did Jesus do? He loved us. How did he do that? Love does. He's saying, I want you to do the same. Lord, this morning as we look at this new commandment in John chapter 13, in light of all of the context, in light of the fact that Jesus, you serve your own betrayer. You placed him in the position of honor. You gave him the bread of friendship. That's love. That's loving your enemy. And then you say to us, your disciples, here's a new commandment. Love each other. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Love just drills down to specificity. To someone I know in my circle who I know has a need and and I respond to that need. To someone that I choose to consider better than myself in the moment. I disadvantage myself to care for them. I pray for this church, Lord. I pray, and myself included, that you would grow us in this virtue. Because it is love that literally changes the world. It's people who take real-world actions to care for those around them. So help us to be that kind of church to one another, to this community, and to the ends of the earth. We pray this in your name.